Um, some of you may remember the snow that came in February. Um, that I think traumatised the organisers here. So it was really miraculous we were able to um, have this date together in May. And thank you for the invitation. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Um, we're going to be looking at two things this morning together. I've been asked to sort of explore really this whole area of sowing and reaping. What does it look like to be a person of the kingdom who steps out in sowing the seed, making Christ known? And then also, what does it look like and how can we become more effective at reaping, at seeing people come into the kingdom and coming to know Jesus personally? Um, I am 37 years old. I have three children. They're all boys, twins who are seven and another little one who's four. And they're madly playing tennis this morning. My mum's looking after them. And they prayed for you at the breakfast table this morning. Dear Jesus, let those ladies meet with you today. So um, their earnest prayers are are covering us today. Um, I'm married to a wonderful church leader called Frog. Yes, that is his name. It's a nickname, but it's just been his name since he was a baby. And we are planting a church really We've bought a farm, and it's quite, we're, we're at quite an exciting stage of um, building and planting a, a church in South Buckinghamshire, so sort of between Oxford and London. And my job is, um, and has been for the last 15 years, working with Ravi Zacharias Ministries um, as an evangelist, as an apologist, which really just means talking about Jesus to people who have questions about the Christian faith. And that sort of takes me all over the world, giving lectures, but also we run a centre in Oxford as part of the university where we're training a new generation of speakers and leaders to be able to proclaim the Christian faith. So that's a little bit about about who I am and where I'm coming from. Um, I'm going to start by sharing some of my story um, as to how in our, what God did in our family to, to bring us as a, as, a Christ, as a family into the kingdom and then um, begin to look at this whole thing of sowing and hopefully you'll see how the story relates to the theme. So I was born in Australia. Um, my father had grown up in a home um, where the Bible was forbidden from being read, looked at, being present in the house. My grandfather was a scientist Um, an atomic scientist and a very, very committed atheist. And he um, was a a wonderful person, a fantastic grandfather, but absolutely um, entrenched in his conviction that there was no God and that he didn't want God to have any role in the family. My father grew up in that context. My mother grew up... um, really away at boarding school and going to church or chapel pretty much every day. And that was a a very effective inoculation against um, Christianity for her. So they met, um, they were both academics. My dad um, had a university job teaching all over the world, America, um, London at the LSE, and then in um, Sydney. And they were in their 30s. My sister and I had been born. My parents had a really nice house. Um, My dad was on television quite a lot, commentating in his uh, field of expertise. 
Um, they had very long holidays. They lived near a beach. They had enough money. They were happily married, a fulfilling relationship. And they sort of got to that point in mid-30s, a bit younger than I am today, and thought, is this it? And my dad had a question in his mind that kept coming back. When I get to 65 and I look back on my life, what will I say it has been for? Is this it? That question was kind of turning over in their minds, but they weren't sort of urgently depressed about it. You know, they were living a happy life, like many of our friends are around us today, probably. Then my father um, was at his workplace, and he walked through um, a talk of a Christian giving a lecture in the university, um, rather like I do all over the world now. It's quite, it's quite amazing to, to think. And he walked past the back of this lecture, and the man was talking about um, who Jesus was, and I think it was about the resurrection. But my father heard one sentence of what the man said, and what the man said that really struck him just as he walked through was this. The only reason you should be a Christian is because it's true. My dad thought, that's really strange. To him, religion was a product of culture. Religion was about faith and superstition. And it was a totally opposite category from truth. You couldn't put those two things together. You could say belief in God is about wish fulfillment. You know, I... I hope that there is this grandfather in the sky and, you know, I have this need for this God to exist and so I choose to believe him and that belief makes me happy. It's a psychological projection, if you like, and therefore I believe in God in that kind of way. Or you can say, I believe in God because my father was a Christian, my grandmother was a Christian, my great-grandmother was a Christian and we're a Christian family. You know, it's an inherited belief. It's about culture. But how could you say that something to do with God has anything to do with truth? Surely these are opposite categories. For him, it was earth-shattering to even hear that. So anyway, he walked away and carried on with life. And a few weeks later, um, we were all at home, and my mother had gone to bed, and my father was marking some exam papers in his study. So there was no soaring music, there was no atmosphere of, you know, a kind of spiritual build-up of any sort whatsoever, no emotion. But into that study where he was just doing his job, Jesus Christ appeared to him. And as Jesus appeared, he, ex he experienced his whole life flashing before him. And this was a, a vision, really, that took place over quite a long time. And he describes what you or I as a Christian might describe um, as conviction of sin. But he really saw different situations from his life where he had made choices, thought things, said things. And he saw the reaction on the face of Jesus to those things that he said and did. And at the end of this vision, he saw Christ on the cross and he just found himself kneeling in his study before Jesus and I say to him, Dad, how did you know it was Jesus? He didn't grow up with any religious Sunday school upbringing. He said, I just knew it was Jesus. And there, kneeling before the cross, he said the first thought that popped into his mind, which were words from the Bible, um, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
So he said that to Jesus and got up off the floor. A Christian, he went in and woke my mother up and said, Jane, the most amazing thing's happened. I've become a Christian. And um, <laughs> my mom, half asleep, sort of listened and rolled over and went back to, went back to sleep, was not impressed with this at all. So um, over the next few days, my father began to think, well, you know, how could I pursue this a bit more? He went and bought a Bible, and then he started to think, I wonder if there are other people out there who actually like Jesus, you know, who've met Jesus, and um, where could I meet them? And it sort of light went on, he thought, maybe church, maybe that would be the place to go. So he hadn't been to church before, and he was quite embarrassed, so he said to my mum, you know, will you come with me? I'm too embarrassed to go on my own. And at this point, she admits that she thought to herself, I know my husband is intelligent. I know how I can cure him of Christianity. So she said, okay, I'll come to church with you, but only if it's an Anglican church. And she thought, once he's experienced that, he'll be cured for life. He'll be fine. <laughs> and um, so they obviously were living in Australia. They found the yellow pages, as you did in those days. These days, we'd go on the internet um, looked up the nearest church to them, rang up and found out the service times turned up on that first Sunday with us in tow as children. Now, various things staggered and amazed them about this church. I won't go into a lot of detail, but the sermon was on Romans chapter 1. Those of you who know your Bibles will know that that um, passage is about two things. It's about what we call natural revelation, the idea that God has revealed himself in creation, that there is no one anywhere who has an excuse to say, how could I have known there was a God? That God has made himself known in lots of ways, ultimately in Christ, but through creation. But that also God will hold people to account. He will judge the world. My father sat there weeping through this 40-minute sermon in an evangelical church as he heard described what he had experienced in his study, conviction of sin, the salvation of the Savior who's come into the world, and just was overwhelmed and moved. And my mother sat there absolutely furious. <laughs> How dare anybody say that they can be certain there's a God, and how dare anybody say that that God might hold me to account? I might be judged? This is outrageous. She was absolutely furious. This was not the Anglicanism she was expecting, let me say. <laughs> so over um, the next few months, my father um, started reading the Bible, and somebody began to disciple him and started to pray. And he wrote letters to people um, telling them what had happened in his life and seeking forgiveness for things that he had done, apologizing for things he'd done. And my mother became increasingly antagonistic. So my dad would try to convert my mum and say things like, Jane, the problem is, you know, you're in darkness and you need to come into the light. Or, you know, you are a lost sheep and the thing is that you just need to be found and then everything will be fine. And it didn't really work for her didn't connect. And then um, about six months later, uh, a friend of our family came. He'd been teaching abroad. He was a colleague of my dad, and he'd been teaching abroad um, for a semester, and he returned home, and my father had written to him to say what had happened in his life. And this man came um, to our house, and they were just sort of standing in the hall as they uh, came in. Um, and the man immediately said to my, my father, I was so happy to receive your letter. It was so brilliant to get your letter. 
And I'm thinking, uh-oh. You know, well, I thought we were going to have a nice evening and you were normal people and our real friends sort of thinking, maybe you're Christians. And he said, yeah, a few months before you became a Christian, I became a Christian. And in my church, what they said to us is we should make a list of 10 people and we should pray for them every day that God would move in their lives and we should seek opportunity to, to speak to them. And, and, you know, you were one of my 10 but before I talked to you about Jesus, you were talking to me about Jesus. And then he said to my mum, I understand from the letter that, you know, you're not a believer. And she said, that's right. And he said, can I ask you, why aren't you a Christian? Why not? Brilliant question. Why not? And my dad's thinking, yeah, why not? You know how these sort of um, close relationships can also often become difficult. And she said, the reason I'm not a Christian is that I'm terrified of dying. Interesting that we sang about no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever clutch me from his hand. That description of what it means to come to Christ and be delivered from the very power of death and the fear of death. And here's my mother saying, the reason I'm not a Christian is I'm, I'm really, really afraid of dying. My father's quite surprised. He was the only person who knew this. She had a sort of demonic, crippling fear of death that had come into her life when her father died and she was away at school. It was a terrible shock, a real trauma. And that loss had created a, a, a place in her life, in her soul, where she was just absolutely terrified. Some of you will know what that's like. She would have panic attacks in the middle of the night, frightened about dying. And when they got married, she made my dad promise, if I ever get cancer, you have to deceive me. I don't want to know I'm dying. So here she is saying, the reason I'm not a Christian is I'm afraid to, of, of dying. So that night, this friend explained the gospel to her, answered some of her questions. And she knelt down on our sitting room floor that evening and became a Christian, praise God but we blame her for the fact that we've been in Anglican churches ever since. <laughs> Sowing and reaping. So you, you'll hear from that story. And then um, they were called into a ministry, really, of church planting and evangelism. And that's the context that I grew up in, seeing um, this total transformation of my parents' priorities and... Um, lifestyle, everything changed, and seeing God at the center now of everything, and seeing Jesus at work in people's lives through, through our family. So you'll, you'll see from that um, that various things happened. There was somebody praying for my dad. There was somebody else faithfully in the secular space, in his workplace, giving a talk about who Jesus is and answering people's questions. He only heard one line of that talk, but that line stayed with him and had a profound impact. There was somebody else who um, was prepared then to disciple him. And we later discovered there were other people who'd prayed in the background for years for our family. And so our family came from total committed, really, you know, virulent atheism 
mixed with very nominal but rejected C of E kind of cultural Christianity, but I, I don't believe it, moved from that to encountering the person of Christ, knowing him and being totally transformed by him. So that's our story, and um, it's, it's a privilege for me now in my work to be involved with seeing people make that journey from darkness to light and helping, if you like, on that process of both sowing and reaping. So together we're going to look at um, seven things um, that I feel the Lord has laid on my heart around this idea of sowing. And then we're going to look in the second section at, at, at reaping. So um, if, if you have a Bible, why don't we just turn quickly to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. And bearing in mind, we're going to have a few texts in mind this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at this, 1 Peter 3.15, with the backdrop as well of the parable of the sower that you'll be familiar with, which is Matthew 13.1-8, to 8, if you're taking notes and you want to go and read it later. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 says this, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Okay, so we're going to be thinking about that, and then I'd love you to flick over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And then verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So I'm going to try and draw out um, seven points really that I think the Lord has laid on my heart to help us practically with what does this mean? What does it mean to be a person who is able to sow generously and who lives a kingdom lifestyle where we're sowing the gospel wherever we go? Okay, so the first thing is to pray. You notice in 1 Peter 3.15 that Peter assumes Christ is set apart in your heart as Lord and that you are living a life that is qualitatively and just obviously different from the people around you, so much so that it will cause people to ask you questions. Why are you like you are? Where does that hope come from that I see in your life? So the starting point for this and for sowing, I believe, is to pray, to spend time with the Lord, and to ask him to do things. To pray, to spend time with him, for, for Christ to be Lord in our lives, and to ask him to have expectation that he will do things for us and through us and in our lives. Now, um, for me, I have discovered that I need both discipline and the sort of prophetic creativity in my prayer life. I need both those things. I need lists so that I can be faithful and I need the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that means I need to make time and space 
for him to speak while I'm praying and for him to be able to lead that moment of prayer. Does that make sense? And that the two need to go together. And it's quite rare in someone's prayer life that you see both of those. Often the sort of creative, prophetic prayer is able to go where the Spirit leads and create masses of space for that, but really struggles to be faithful and consistent and to see that longer-term breakthrough. Whereas those who are more discipline-orientated often struggle to invite the creativity and the power and the prophetic gift. If we can keep both of those together in our prayer lives, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see. I've just, um, last week, been involved in a mission in a school. So being actually in this school reminds me rather of it. I hardly ever go into schools. And this is now twice in two weeks. But there was a, a man in our church who um, works with Youth for Christ. And he's been praying for the local schools in High Wycombe for years and years and years and doing ministry there and seeing, trying to see breakthrough happen. And we've been talking about um, the importance of evangelism together, and I've been trying to encourage him. And um, last September, we said, why don't we think about trying to do a mission in one of the schools? And I said to him, which one, I'll leave it to you as to which of the 19 schools you're responsible for it would be. And he said, without a moment's hesitation, I know what the school is. Tell you how I know? because three Christian young people in the previous June had decided they were going to start a Christian union in their school. They wanted there to be a public witness for Christ, three of them. He said, I've come alongside them. They're praying every week. They're believing God for a breakthrough in their school, and they've grown. At that point, there were about 12 of them. Okay, so he said, what we're going to do is we're going to do this mission. I said, okay, I'll, I'll get the team. I'll come and do the talks, and I'll bring a team with me. Um, and you do... They're inspiring the young people to pray. And they were crying out to God, really, really crying out to him. And they'd grown by the time of the mission to about 30 young people. So um, there's an amazing teacher in the school as well who soaked this, this place in prayer. We were able to go in for this week of mission. And we saw 93 teenagers make commitments to Christ last week. Praise God. And less than a year ago, there were three of them in their school. Now, how is it possible that that could happen? Well, it's a work of the Spirit. It has to be a work of God. And many other hundreds were asking questions and wanting to be followed up, and they're doing an alpha course as well. How is it possible that a group of three could see something like that happen in their state school? Because they prayed. God answers prayer. He loves to answer prayer. So that's the first one in our sowing. The second is to begin to radiate Christ, to begin to radiate Christ. Is there something evidently different in you, whether it's in suffering or in joy, that people notice? Is the Holy Spirit in you, on you, working through you in such a way that Jesus is just radiating. It's not you, it's him. I think that's the precursor to sowing, is that where we go, we take the presence of Jesus with us. Now, how does that work? Paul promises that the very power, the dunamis, 
the Greek word is there for which we have dynamite, you know, powerful stuff. The very dunamis power that resurrected Christ from the dead is in us, is in the believer. Is that your experience? <laughs> I wonder. That's the, the promise of the Christian life, that God is within us. And so when we talk about sowing, we're not talking about, you know, oh my goodness, I've got to sort of make myself, get out there and share the gospel. You know, there is an element of grasping a few nettles, and we're going to look at how we do that practically. But the precursor to this, to be someone who sows, remember, 2 Corinthians talks about God being the one who gives us seed in abundance. It's a powerful image that we carry his presence where we go. And as 1 Peter 3 says, that causes people to ask us questions. That is a context within which to be someone who's able to sow seeds. And I believe this can happen instantaneously, and it can happen over a long period of time. Um, I remember when my twins were starting in school for the first time. We'd just moved into the area. We didn't know anybody, and they didn't know anybody. And I was trying to sort of find my way into reception. Those of you who mothers probably remember this or know, know what it's like. And you've got their uniform, and I've got two of them at the same time. It's sort of like I'm trying not to burst into tears myself. And then the little one, who's only two, sort of dragging along on my foot. And I was feeling very harassed, actually, but in the changing room, trying to hang things up. And I bumped into another mother, and we just began to talk. And um, I don't even remember what we said. It was very inconsequential. I had no idea who she was, and she had no idea who I was. And we met again three days later. And she said to me, there's something different about you, and I want to know what it is. Is it an aura? <laughs> there's something different about you. What is it? This can happen instantaneously, or it can happen over a period of time as we do life alongside people. We share our lives. If the very dunamis that rose Jesus from the dead is in you, that ought to be obvious to other people. Do you know what I mean? That's not a secret. Dunamis, power, dynamite is, is evident. People can see that, the presence of Christ within us. I have another friend who... Um, is quite, she's got other Christian friends and she admitted to me recently that she Google searched me <laughs> to sort of internet stalk me and see, you know, what kind of a Christian nutter are you really? And, um, and she said, you know, I've got all these Christians who are, who are talking to me and, you know, from different seasons of her life, from school, an old school friend and then a university friend and someone on her road and now we've become really good friends. I'm sure God's on her case. But she began very, very hostile, never wanted to talk about God. And even, you know, you sometimes just raise a kite see, and see what happens. And I would raise kites in conversations. And she would not ever pick up on them, ever, ever, ever. And then after about 18 months, slowly through relationship, and actually it was through um, one of my sons and his witness with her son, that she's begun to want to know more. What is it that's different? Um, 
remember her saying on my doorstep, she'd come to something and saying, um, I saw joy in those people, meaning us believers, that I know I have never experienced. I went back to my family and said, they've got something we haven't got. Okay, so this can happen instantaneously or it can happen over a period of time. But the second thing about sowing is that we radiate Christ. Christianity is not a system. It's not a set of propositions. At the center of Christianity is Christ. This is all about him and his presence made known through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we get that wrong, we're going to be sowing the wrong thing. We're not sowing an idea. We're we're sowing seed that is essentially, you can know Jesus Christ personally. He came to the cross for you. You can be forgiven by a person. This is not, you have to accept these ideas. You need to jump through these hoops. You need to do these good things. This is meet Jesus. And you and I are the one who, ones who, who radiate him, who, who bring him into the situations that we find ourselves in. Thirdly, sowing is made possible and made easier by those for whom everything is on the altar for Christ. What do I mean by that? Peter says, set apart Christ as Lord. Now, that's a sort of familiar phrase. So we think, yes, yes, God, Jesus is Lord. You know, theologically, I assent. Jesus is God. He's in charge. He's the creator. I think Peter's talking about something deeper here. He's saying, set apart Christ in your life, in your heart, over your finances, over your time, in your church, in your family. This is intensely practical. Christ being Lord is a theological statement, but it is a practical reality that people can see, that is evident, that is obvious. And this is a real struggle for us in the Western church because we have our material comforts and we have our systems and we have our sort of established church practices and we have, um, you know, our expectations of what our life should look like. But set apart Christ as Lord in your heart is, it's a, it's a call to utter devotion and passion there's nothing half-hearted about this. This is, it, it is, it's emotional, but it, it's more than emotional. It's your life being staked on Jesus is Lord. Not, well, I have a really nice life and I've added Jesus into it. And he's, you know, he's there for my therapy and he makes me a little bit more fulfilled. It's, this is eternally significant. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, Nothing else really matters. And I'm going to stake my life on his passion, his love for the world, and what he's called me to do. And I'm prepared to surrender other ambitions. I'm prepared to surrender different areas of my life to him personally. It's like a, a, a crazy, amazing love affair for which you're going all out. You're utterly 100% committed, as, as my husband says. You know, the chicken, bacon and eggs for breakfast, the chicken's involved, the pig is committed. 
Do you have skin in the game here? That's the question. Do you have skin in the game and can people see that? You know, sometimes it, it's helpful to, um, to meet Christians from other places to examine whether this is a reality for ourselves. You know, I've had the privilege of being involved with um, the leaders of the underground church movement in China and, um, you know, just absolutely extraordinary disciples of Jesus. I was um, invited to be part of a a week of teaching for 250 leaders who, um, between them, had direct apostolic oversight over 60 million Christians. You know, there's one guy there with 10 million people in his church. Just amazing, amazing leaders, many of whom have been in prison, many of whom have paid a huge cost, most of whom have been beaten or brutalized in some kind of way for their faith. Or the believers in Turkey, you know, I was there a few months ago meeting with a group of young women, you know, a number of whom are recent new believers in Jesus, for whom the cost is incredibly high, but who are just full of the joy of the Lord. Radiate Christ, be someone for whom everything is on the altar. And that speaks, that speaks in a materialistic culture where we're all in it, everything for ourselves, basically, aren't we? You know, in Britain, it's, it's, the culture is, you know, you want nice stuff for yourself and your own family, an opportunity. So to, to live in a way that is countercultural to that is a way of sowing, and it is noticeable. Then fourthly, sowing involves prioritizing people and making space in our lives and time to build relationships with people who don't know Christ. This is a huge challenge for me. I'm sure it is for many of you. It's a challenge for me because I'm at a stage in life when I have small children and I'm working part-time and I'm helping my husband build a church and you can get very involved in Christian activity. But I know, I know without beyond a shadow of a doubt that what Jesus wants me to do, because this is the way he lived and he had a much busier ministry than I do, is that he wants me to prioritize building relationships with people, not to view people as commodities, but to build relationships with people who don't know him and make time for that. Just read John's gospel and you'd be staggered to see how much time the son of God spends building relationship with individual people. It's amazing. Think about the conversations. John 1 is uh, uh, after the prologue. You have this um, insight into a conversation between Jesus and John's disciples. And then, you know, Nathaniel and Philip. And then John 3, well, John 2 contains the conversation with Jesus and his mother and the wedding at Canaan and all of that. John 3 is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. You know, about being born again. John 4 is a conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. He's not preaching a lot of sermons there. <laughs> you know, there, there are the large crowds. But Jesus makes time. He makes time to spend time with individuals. So to prioritize people and give ourselves to relationship. 
Then fifthly, to be intentional in sowing. To be intentional in sowing. I love the parable of the sower because he was a really, really terrible farmer. You know, and Jesus was telling this story in a culture where everybody knew about agriculture, um, you know, which is not necessarily our cultural context today. People knew that you don't just get loads of seed, seed costs money, and throw it around randomly. You prepare the soil, you know, you, you, you are very intentional about what type of soil you put, what type of seed in. But the parable of the sower, the man's throwing it everywhere, you know, on the paths, in the bits of stone, in the good soil as well. So we, um, we see there's this passion in the sower's heart to get the seed out, whatever. This is what he's trying to do. He's just trying to sow wherever he goes. He's intentional about getting seed out and planted. What does this mean? What, what, what would that look like for us? Do you wake up thinking, how can I take the person of Christ, the message of Christ, into the situations I'm going into today? To be thinking, what is it going to mean for me today to, to sow? to fly a few kites, to use another image. To have that expectation that God wants to use you and that he wants to give you both divine appointments and creative opportunities every day um, to, to, to make him known. Do we have a, an expectation of that? And, and are we prepared to sort of put ourselves out there to do it? A few years ago, um, uh, my husband and I were in London, and he was leading a church in a place called Peckham. Some of you will know some of the stories um, that happened there. A very um, exciting situation to be involved in ministry, but also really challenging. And after a few months that we had lived there, we were really asking this question, how are we going to make Jesus known here? We didn't know anybody, you know, we'd moved in newly ourselves. How are we going to do this? What, what is it, what's it going to take for us, not just the church? And we were praying and thinking, and I had a dream. And I, I saw, woke up and told Frog, and I could see half of him was like, yay! And half of his heart was sort of sinking, thinking, okay, we've got to actually do this now. But in this dream, I saw um, us as Christians, that where the church was, the train station, the train sort of platform was above the church, and it looked down onto the church. And I saw us worship, filling that station with worship and with a proclamation of the gospel. And it was just um, in my dream before Christmas so um, he went and spoke to the station manager there and said, would it be okay? You know, hello, I'm the vicar of Peckham, and would it be okay if we came and filled this place with worship to God, with music, um, for a week? And we'd like to give away stuff and, um, you know, maybe have a bit of an explanation about what the Christian faith is as well. And to his amazement, the station master said, yeah, okay. 
So our first Christmas there, um, a group of us, it was absolutely freezing cold and it was one of the grottiest stations you can imagine. Um, it's all been revamped a bit since then. Filled the whole station and it went up into the platforms with worship. It was absolutely amazing. And God broke out in that station in an incredible way. So many different stories of people coming to faith just through that. One um, member of our church went to work, came and sort of did it for an hour and then went to work and got a phone call from a friend of his who is a Christian but whose daughter had completely gone away from the faith and totally rejected Christianity. And she had walked through the station that morning and the Holy Spirit had just touched her. And she'd just been walking through, weeping like this, through the worship. And um, my, my husband would do sort of like a, like a two, very, very short explanation of, you know, of Christmas or of Christ or something. And she heard one of those and, and came back to the Lord. Just walking through the station, rang her father. Her father sitting next to someone who was there that morning. Amazing. God doing extraordinary things through... Um, through his own initiative, we couldn't have dreamt that up. By the end, um, they were allowing him to go on the tannoy, my husband, to say, you know, the 8.20 is running three minutes late, but let me tell you about something you can rely on. <laughs> God. Uh, um, now, in one sense, that was, that was very random, and people... Thousands of people came. We did that every week then. Um, ev no, not every week, every year for a week. It was a, it was a very random way of sowing, but all sorts of people were drawn, and that was the initial way that they were drawn to Christ, or for some had that power encounter in that moment, in that very unlikely place. So I sow intentionally. In, in my school, in a couple of weeks, we're doing a... Um, there are a few of us who are Christian mothers, and we're going to we're inviting our friends to come to the sport pavilion for an hour with homemade cakes and tea and coffee, and they can just ask any questions they've got about life and purpose and the Christian faith. Now, I have to confess that I'm doing that sort of thing all over the place, you know, in universities and going and giving lectures and. I'm sort of really, really tired, and I, I, I don't really want to do it at home on one level. But the Lord just laid it in, into my heart to say, we need to do this. We need to step out, and the time is now. People are ready. Some of the relationships are built, and we need to have a, a moment of intentional sowing in that community. So you can pray for us in a couple of weeks' time. We're doing that. So that is um, sowing intentionally. And then um, sixthly, uh, let's just have a quick look at Psalm 126 and verse 5. Um, and this is the promise um, that those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. There's a, a, another passage in Isaiah that talks about going out, carrying that seed and weeping and returning, leaping with joy. And amidst the triumphs and the miracles that in our lives will draw people to Christ, 
um, that are an integral part of, of sowing effectively, exposing people to the presence of Jesus, the dunamis power of Jesus, the great works and wonders of God that he's doing in our time, is also the reality of sowing in tears. And again, as I was preparing for this, I felt that the Lord, there were people here that you need to hear that. For some of you, um, you can identify with the dunamis power, the victory of God, the miracles of God that are happening in your life and your church and people are drawn and they see evidence in you radiating. But for others of us, and this is equally affirmed by the Bible, it's interesting, for others of us, it's as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and it's as we weep over the sorrow in our lives and in our community that we sow effectively. That's the promise. Look at it. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. We've had this um, experience in our church over the last um, few months where we've had two families um, who were both expecting um, new babies and one couple were expecting twins and it looked very very, very likely that one of the twins would die. It was almost a certainty. And the church were praying, we were crying out to God. And this pregnancy has come through and these two little girls have been born. And it's just joy, amazing joy. And it really was a miracle this baby was healed. And another family in our church who uh, were told quite early on in the pregnancy that the, the baby was not viable. There was so much wrong with the baby. And he was not going to live. And the mother is just a, a dear friend, amazing, courageous woman. They, as a family, chose to, to bring this little boy to full term and for him to be born. And he died a few weeks after he was born. But the way that they have walked through that pain and that sorrow, leaning on Jesus, lots of questions, of course, totally natural and expected. But the way that they have borne that sorrow and invited Jesus, who is the man of sorrows, who bore the grief of the world into their pain, has been the most incredibly powerful testimony, not just in their own friends' lives, but in my friends' lives who've been hearing about them and hearing about this little boy, Noah, he was called. So I want to encourage you this morning, um, we're going to break for coffee in a moment and we're going to look at this, the whole thing of reaping in the next session, but I want to encourage you that the Bible affirms those of you who are sowing in tears as much as the Bible affirms those who are leaping and reaping with songs of joy. And there isn't a dichotomy, there isn't a sense in which those who sow in tears are not carrying the presence of Jesus, quite the opposite. Those who walk through the hopeless and the dark time of death and sorrow and suffering and pain are walking a well-trodden path. It's a path that Jesus himself trod. It's a path that he taught us to expect as believers that we would experience suffering and difficulty. But the promise of his presence in those dark times is there. It's fascinating to me that in those moments we are often sowing seed. Others are seeing, they're watching how we suffer. 
the great um, writer Solzhenitsyn, who was imprisoned by Stalin for writing poetry, became a Christian in the Gulag through watching the way that two Christian pastors died. They were both kicked to death. But the way they died, the way they suffered, so moved him that Solzhenitsyn turned his life over to Christ and became one of the most powerful prophetic voices, both in Russia and in the West, for the Christian gospel. Reaping while we are weeping, sowing while we are weeping, is an expectation of the Christian life, the promise of the presence, the sweet presence of Jesus as we walk through those dark times is there. So that's my six thoughts. We'll leave the seventh one for um, the next session. But to pray, to radiate Christ, to lay everything on the altar for him, to be those who prioritize people, to be those who are intentional in sowing, to wake up thinking, how am I going to sow, to expect dreams and visions, and then sickly, to go out weeping, carrying seed, sowing in tears is the work of the Spirit. Let me, why don't I pray for us, and then we're going to break for coffee. So, Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're at work now. I can just really sense you at work um, right now in this room, and we invite and welcome your presence around these tables. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're here, that you're real that we're not just following principles and ideas, but that we're following you, Jesus, the person, the real, true God. And for those who are in that season of weeping, for those who are um, in a season of pain, we just really invite you to come now, Holy Spirit, and to minister your sweet presence and your hope, Lord, that just because there are difficult circumstances doesn't mean that they're excluded from sowing, doesn't mean that they're ineffective, but that, Lord, you affirm those who are suffering. So we welcome you here, we welcome your work, we welcome your word. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we fellowship now and share coffee, you would be continuing to speak to us.